Well, thank you very much for having me and for the flattering remarks. Um, I have two personal things to note before we begin. One is that I live in a U-shaped bungalow, um, and on one side are the bedrooms, and on the other is the kitchen. And in the middle is this large combined living dining room study. Uh, and the only really reliable place to get the Wi-Fi is in this room. So you will probably see my granddaughter going back and forth um, during the talk. And there's just no way to avoid that. Uh, and the second thing is that I'm having an allergic reaction to eye drops. And so my eyes are watering and I'm not crying at being here. Uh, okay. Uh, so why trust science? The um, work for this is taken from drafts of, or ideas for a book, um, which is uh, contracted with OUP, and it's name. It's called the Tangle of Science: Reliability Without um, Without Rigor. And uh, the co-authors are the senior authors are Eleonora Montuski and Jeremy Hardy and I, and then two UCSD PhD candidates. Uh, Anne Thresher and Matt Solomon. Um, we want to talk about the standard view today. And the standard view is that um, the really outstanding, the big player in science um, is generalization. And you get that, or general laws, uh, general theory. Um, and you get that from philosophers, as we know. This is just, I started on a list that I found of articles on laws. Uh, and uh, you see, I and I didn't put in redundancies, so we're only down to E, and we go on and on endlessly about uh, laws in, um, in philosophy of science. Um, but it's not just us. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences says, oh, goodness, I can't actually see uh, what it says because the um, pictures of you guys are in the way. Um, that, at any rate, generalizations or general laws or something that you can read and I can't are the goal of science. Um, the national, the U.S. National Research Council um, used tried to characterize science by giving six principles of inquiry, and one of them that was a principle of inquiry for science is to generalize. And then the International Network for Natural Science says that basic research seeks generalization. So this is the standard view. Okay. Now, our hope. Uh, is to try and drive philosophy of science and philosophy and even uh, science studies people to refocus from the truth or acceptability or whatever your favorite concept there is, the truth, acceptability, truth-likeness, et cetera, um, of um, general laws and theories. I want to not uh, focus on those as we have been, but instead to focus on the reliability of, and then a bunch and bunches of other stuff, Models, methods, practices, concept development, concept validation, measures, evaluations, devices, statistical analyses, data curation, which involves production, preservation, and classification, and dissemination, narratives, and so forth. So what we really want is to refocus from the truth um, and acceptability of general principles, laws, theories, to um, focus on the reliability of then not just those, but all the pieces that together make scientific successes. Okay. Now, our question then is, uh, what makes science reliable? And our answer in that we're trying to formulate work up in the book is um, that it's virtuous tangles of vastly different kinds of scientific work all tangled together. Um, 
Now, that's a big undertaking, <laughs> and we're not going to do that uh, uh, today, but I'll just show you our image. As here's science. Uh, this is a South African jacana bird. And um, here's how we think science crops up. It's really precious products um, like this. Uh, we like the, so by weaving together a ton of a lot of different kinds of things, and you know, the little rigid bits that are not, uh, don't play any more important role than anything else. Um, now, I like that we use the jacana bird image because you know, um, it's reminiscent of Neurath's boat that um, you know, we're uh, constantly rebuilding our ships at sea without ever being able to set into firm land. And the jacana bird uh, builds her nest um, on water, but nevertheless builds it in such a way that it will support the, 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 you know, the precious eggs. Okay, today, I mean, that's the, that's the book, um, but this is in the context of the book. Today, um, I want to uh, try more narrowly to address the question, why reliability? And in doing so, I have passing remarks on what's so good about the particular as opposed to the general, okay? So um, I'm going to look at five answers to um, why reliability. Um, and we'll look at them one after another, so I'm not going to read them all out. The first is there's a concern that we all ought to have, and many people have expressed it, is, well, if we're, if we're focusing on general principles, claims, etc., and we're worried about their truth, then um, they, what is the general claim that you're taking to be true? And um, there are two roots into a worry about this. Uh, one is the very familiar doctrine of meaning as use uh, that we see in Wittgenstein, Sellers, and Brandom in philosophy of science, Kuhn, Feyerabend, and Hansen, and then more broadly in science studies, Peter Gallison's work on trading zones in pidgin languages uh, to explain the um, how we come to agreement uh, on things that are not really very well-defined claims um, when they're well-defined over here one way and over there another way um, because of the, the use that's made of them. And yet um, some agreement comes uh, about, about them. So um, I particularly though have been following, um, I suppose many of you know this, the work of Hasek Chang. Um, and Chang has, um, really wants to talk about what constitutes a true generalization. And it's not just how does it come about, but he actually thinks that, um, that it's, it's constituted by the back and forth mutual adjustment or coherence or harmony among new and old knowledge, theories large and small, new and old, concepts, measurement techniques and standards, instrumentation, representational devices, uh, calculational devices, approximation techniques, etc., cetera, uh, and more. So my, the, the lesson I want to take away from this is that the, these considerations about meaning as use imply that um, if you take an object, a claim, um, a putative claim, a principle that, um, that uh, is functioning in one way and it's um, in one environment and you take it to um, a new environment, it's not going to be able to do the same things as it could in the old environment. Okay. So that's really worry about just what claim it, is it that's being made. Okay. Another source of worry about that is uh, what I said in the question I asked, where have all the propositions gone? Actually, what I really want to say is where were they in the first place? 
So my, my uh, claim is that a vast number of our prized general principles and formulae are not proper propositions to begin with. And I think in particular of Cater's Paribus laws and generics um, and of equations and formulae. Okay. So let's look at CP laws or generics. Um, and uh, it's notoriously difficult to find a semantics that turns generics you know, into well-formulated propositions that are candidates for truth or falsehood. Uh, I mean, there are semantics available, but none of them seem to work very well um, for scientific uh, settings. Um, Michael Strevens does offer um, a, uh, uh, a semantics. But he first turns the generics into set caters paribus principles, and then he offers you a semantics for the caters paribus principles. Um, so he claims then that they are um, propositions capable of truth and falsehood. Um, his example is printing money causes inflation, and which he then renders as caters paribus, printing money causes inflation. Uh, and he tells us this, <clears throat> under a number of different circumstances, printing money may not affect inflation uh, if the extra currency is hoarded in mattresses, for instance, rather than spent, so taken back out of circulation. Okay. Because these circumstances are rather diverse, an attempt to specify the economic regularity with any degree of precision can be a daunting undertaking, requiring presumably many clauses, sub-clauses, I don't know what's at the end of that uh, line there, parentheses and footnotes. Um, okay. If you were going to specify the economic regularity with any degree of precision, you'd have all those clauses, um, but that's not the way to do it, uh, Strevens argues. So instead, he says, there's a mechanism, and when you utter this generic or CP principle, you're pointing to the mechanism and you're referring to it. Okay? And um, the thing about the mechanism is that when it operates undisturbed, it actually does generate um, the regularity that the principle seems to, uh, to, seems to claim. So um, the CP clause refers to the mechanism and its undisturbed operation, says, um, says Michael. Um, it does so though, even without us, generally without us knowing uh, its structure. So he says the, you know, what the mechanism actually is, is opaque to us. So it's a funny kind of semantics that gives with one hand what it takes away with the other because um, we can utter truths well, with the CP principles or generics. Um, we just don't know what they are. <laughs> uh, okay. um, now, but it is the case that supposing that, a that exceptions are cases where the mechanism does not operate properly, then the CP claim is true under Stevens semantics. Um, so long, so so long as the printing money mechanism operates, printing money causes inflation. Um, that's what um, okay. That's what Stravin says, and that's supposed to be the basis for uh, having. Now, if you buy that semantics, then at least you've got a proposition that can be uh, true or false, not has this uh, drawback. Um, and I think without that semantics, um, we generally just don't have one um, that works uh, in. Um, scientific context for genetics and CP principles. Okay, now the, the uh, tr to transition to the next point I want to make though um, is that um, Strevens tells us 
that even though generally the mechanisms are opaque, uh, for instance, the economics mechanisms um, are often not opaque. Uh, when economists propose, propose a hypothesis, such as printing money leads to inflation, they are able to describe, to some extent, how the mechanism uh, works. Uh, well, the descriptions play, um, I can't see what it is. Descriptions, of course, play an important role in picking out the intended range of application or the intended targets of application. So um, that the, the description of how the mechanism works are supposed to help you pick, in the, pick out an intended target of inquiry. Um, now, this leads me to uh, my next um, reason for wanting to care about uh, reliability, and that's that many um, general principles aren't true that. Um, they, if you render them uh, as true that, they usually turn out to be either false, unwarranted, or of little use. And we can see that um, by going back to the, um, the Strevens example. Um, Strevens' CP principles, after all, um, cover precious little of the intended targets of inquiry. I mean, he's pointed us to the intended targets of inquiry, but when you um, turn them into uh, truth-apt claims or even true claims using his semantics, um, they no longer cover most of the intended targets of inquiry. And that's um, because the printing money mechanism, it's a really good example, the printing money mechanism never operates undisturbed. It always operates in real settings where much else that affects outcomes uh, is going on. Uh, and that they involve an intricate mix of fiscal and monetary policies inserted into a very complex economic situation. So far from, I mean, you can get the use, the Strevin semantics to get, um, imagine, we're, we're happy to buy it. You might be able to, to use it to get um, true CP principles, uh, sorry, truth out CP principles. And they may be true because actually refer to what happens when the mechanism operates undisturbed, but then those very principles just don't tell you anything about the intended targets. Okay. Um, now, building these models that do tell you about the intended targets is a highly skilled enterprise, and it calls on a huge body of work, okay? Uh, and it's work that comes from economics and elsewhere. This is foreshadowing, you know, my interest in trying to get you all excited about all these other things that go on in science. Um, so, you know, it's a lot, huge body of work that comes from not just economics, um, but psychology, financial regulation, banking models, accounting, studies of borrowers' attitudes to risk, studies of lenders' attitudes to risk, and so forth. So um, that's uh, okay. So we don't use these CP claims, I say, um, as as claims, CP principles as claims to derive other claims. That's a kind of standard story. We want them to be true out, we want them to be true, um, and then we can do derivations with them. And I just don't see us um, doing it that way. Um, uh, so I don't think we need proper propositions to begin with. Um, we use these in tandem with much else uh, to construct um, models and predictions to validate measures and so forth. So what we need is for these um, is to underwrite the reliability for the purposes which we put them to. 
Now, I say, I make exactly the same claim about equations and formulae, um, and I'm not going to rehearse the arguments at all here, uh, but it's, they parallel what I've just said about um, the generics, uh, and that's in the nature of the, the artful modeler. Um, what I uh, argue there uh, with many examples is that if you try to render these uh, equations and formulae true, um, that um, it cuts away their usefulness. So um, the, uh, the gen general principles thought of as something that's the candidates for true and false uh, are just not very useful to us. Okay. Third argument is um, that the reliability of a tangle of other scientific outputs is presupposed in warranting principles. And um, I don't think I have too much to argue here because as soon as I tell you um, why it's widely accepted, our usual focus in philosophy of science um, and in actually in the work I've been doing in evidence-based policy, uh, so a lot of practicing um, evaluators and um, social scientists uh, take this to be the case too. They think of evidence as the basic warrant for general principles. Um, but there's no fact of the matter about what, um, uh, whether or not E is evidence for H independent of background assumptions. Okay. Um, now that's, I think, now widely accepted in philosophy and uh, philosophy of science, but it's, I think it, the real depth of how much it matters isn't uh, usually taken, uh, it's not taken seriously enough. I like uh, to illustrate with Marilena de Bruchianico's story of two warring camps in high uh, temperature superconductivity. Uh, one uh, took the explanatory mechanism for these um, uh, superconductivity, high temperature superconductors, to be phonons, and the other took it to be uh, magnetic modes. Then in now quite a long time ago, in 2002, uh, new methods uh, showed a kink in the dispersion curve of reflected photoelectrons. So there was a new experimental result that came out. Uh, and the interesting thing is both camps agreed that the data were correct. Um, but <laughs> each claimed that this evidence supported their theory and contradicted the oppositions. And, and that's because they had wildly different interpretations uh, of the data, and that was due to the great number of differing assumptions between them. So one turned the same fact into evidence for themselves and against the other, and the other did uh, exactly the reverse, or mutatus mutandus. Um, and that's just to illustrate the fact that we know that there's no um, there's no fact of the matter. Evidence is not a two-placed relation. E is evidence for H. I mean, it's always got to be that E is evidence for H relative to a whole bunch of other facts. Um, this is not only, uh, not only do I uh, stress this a lot, uh, it's a key pillar in the argument theory of evidence and in John Norton's work on material theories of induction. Okay. So, um, the, uh, <clears throat> I've talked about background assumptions uh, to, that are needed to, to turn facts into evidence, but um, 
they're not all that needs to be reliable that needs to be reliable to warrant a general principle. So the background assumptions need to be reliable if your evidence is going to be evidence for the principle, and so your principle is going to have support. But background assumptions aren't all that has to be reliable. Um, and I'll give you, I mean, there's just zillions of other things that have to be reliable, um, but I'll give you just a couple of social science examples. Um, in, um, in defending that the post-conviction, uh, I forgot what it is, uh, PCRA, uh, post-conviction uh, res uh, recidivism assessment algorithm, is generally accurate and racially unbiased predictor of recidivism. Okay. So um, here's a paper that wants to defend that the PCRA is, algorithm is accurate and a racially un, an accurate and racially unbiased predictor of recidivism. So that, um, that's what it's supposed to be reliable for. Okay. Um, and then uh, they, among the many, many things they did, I just want to highlight two uh, that, or you know, part of this background work that allowed their algorithm, the results of their algorithm to be evidence um, is uh, that um, we're worried about interrelator, interrater validity. So what happens is that um, you know, different people score uh, prisoners on how likely they are to be uh, recidivist uh, 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 and they have to feed in information in order for the algorithm to grind out a Yes, likely or no, not very likely answer. And the, it, one of the questions you worry about with um, uh, procedures like that is inter-rater validity. Will it turn out that if you do it, if you feed in this information, evaluate the information and figure out how to feed it in, um, will, it, you, will you feed in the information that gives the same output as what I do? Um, and they claim that. Um, they have a very good reason to believe in inter-rater validity, that the officers complete a training certification process and that it's been, shield, it's been shown that the ones who go through this process um, have a, a high rate of agreement. Okay. They also have worries about test bias. That they, so they do work to um, remove the, to show that the test isn't biased. Um, uh, there's little evidence of test bias. The, inst the instrument strongly predicts arrest for both black and white offenders, and a given score has essentially the same meaning. That is, if you're, uh, uh, um, if you're a black person with a score, um, you have the same probability of recidivism as if you're a white person with a score. Um, so that's another worry that they, um, so another piece of scientific work that has to be done if we're going to have uh, evidence for this generalization that the PCRA is an unbiased and accurate um, assessor of recidivism. So the lesson from this is that you may take an impressive new result that you see uh, to confirm a general law, but whether the result is relevant, I mean, does it really confirm it, um, depends on a host of other assumptions being true, other experiments having been well conducted, a host of concepts being true to the world, their measures for these concepts being sound and um, well, uh, I don't know, well constructed, uh, well carried out, etc., etc., etc. So you, um, 
the even when you want to start doing confirmation of to find out whether a general principle is true or acceptable, um, you have to um, presuppose the wide reliability of a host of other kinds of scientific uh, products. Okay, fifth, fourth um, reason for focusing on reliability is this is a really simple one again, much that needs evaluating in science just isn't a candidate for truth. Um, so remember this long list of things I want us to focus on, models, methods, practices, concept development, concept validation, measures, evaluations, devices, statistical analyses, data curation, production, preservation, classification, dissemination, narratives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of those really do, and I've just reinforced that we want them to be reliable for the jobs they do, um, even if you're only interested in, if you think you're only interested in um, the truth or acceptability of general principles, you need all these other things to be reliable at their jobs um, in order to have um, any uh, evidence or warrant for the general principles. Um, but it, independently, you know, when you, when you measure things, you want the measures to be reliable for various different purposes. Okay. Um, now, the... Uh, Another uh, important question is, um, the, I think the, the most important thing to me uh, about focusing on reliability um, is that it gets you, it immediately invites the question, reliable for what? If, if you say, if you, if you focus on truth, you don't, that question doesn't come into question. But um, when you realize that what you need is reliability or you're focusing on reliability, that immediately invites you to focus on um, what purpose uh, is to be served. And I think, for instance, of general principles. Um, these general principles, um, of course, if, if we don't actually know what they are, <laughs> uh, this is a funny claim, but they do a good job in some uses and not in others. Or, you know, the same formula it does a good job in some cases, uh, but not others. And so, by uh, calling them, you know, evaluating them as true versus not true is just the wrong thing to evaluate. Uh, another uh, easy place to see this is with models. Um, there are a variety of purposes to which we put models, and you get different evaluations of them depending on what the, of a given model, given what the purpose is. Is the model intended to provide understanding? Or what about providing accurate prediction? And then if that, predictions of what? So some models predict um, a variety of things uh, correctly and get a whole lot of other things wrong. So um, one of the famous models for getting the business cycle right, um, we're very, very good at getting the, 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 the cyclicity uh, predicted, um, but they actually predicted that the volume of trade would be zero. So predictions about what? Um, should it depict significant causes? Is that the purpose that you want? Um, um, or perhaps instead, if you're in the realm of thinking about causation, it's supposed to isolate a single cause to study its peculiar effect. Um, or are you going to probe the model uh, to learn about the world? You know, no, you're not probing the world directly, but you're probing the model. Um, and if so, just how do we plan to probe it, and what do we want to learn? Um, so those are cases where um, you can see that the, 
as soon as you think about evaluating uh, whether this is a, a good thing or not, uh, you have to turn to uh, thinking about um, the purposes. Um, let me illustrate um, with uh, some examples uh, about measures. So um, a good measure uh, a, has three components, a characterization of the concept, a formal representation of it, um, like, you know, scale of one to 10, right? uh, proceed, and procedures for assigning values. It has those three components plus a defense that the three match, that the procedures are appropriate to the characterization, the representation is appropriate to the characterization, etc. Okay, now um, think about the capabilities measure of well-being, um, which you all know about, um, formulated um, in different ways by Mark Chisana and Martha Nussbaum. Um, in putting it informally, what Sen characterizes uh, ca capabilitarian well-being is he says it's constituted by the lives worth living, that are your well-being, your capability and well-being is the constituted by the set of lives worth living that are available to you. Uh, Nussbaum, by contrast, specifies 10 spheres of human experience that um, you need to be above a minimal threshold on in order to have well-being. Now, both of them stress that the values involved, the lives worth living, or these 10 spheres of experience, um, are all ones that are chosen, uh, um, are value-laden. Both stress that the values involved are diverse and cannot generally be ranked in importance or traded one against another. So, you know, somebody might be um, very high on eight of Nussbaum's spheres and um, low on two, and you can't balance that off against somebody who's high on five and uh, et cetera. Um, you can't balance them off against each other, and it doesn't do to try to bring somebody um, above on you know, two by lowering it on one. They just are incommensurable, and um, they can't generally be ranked and traded against one another. So both argue that capabilitarian well-being doesn't lend itself to providing total orderings. So it's just there's a fact of the matter about whether I have more lives I value available to me than people with a life expectancy of 35 whose children are starving. Um, there, there's a fact of the matter about that, but there's probably no fact of the matter about whether I have uh, more lives worth living available to me than God. Um, or whether my lives worth living are more valuable than his set of lives worth living. It's not just a matter of number, but um, uh, it's, the, it's the, this, the quality of the set. So they both argue that capability and well-being doesn't lend itself to providing total orderings among the individuals or populations that are, um, whose well-being is being measured by this measure. Yet, um, despite that they both argue that, that that's an essential part of the characterization of the concept, many attempts to measure <laughs> capability and well-being really want to do just that, and they, they design measures that do just that. Um, and there are two that um, a, this uh, UCSD PhD student's been working on, uh, Alkirian Foster's uh, Capability Deprivation Measure and uh, Krishna Kumar's Improved Human Development Index. Um, and that 
student is uh, Travis Chamberlain, and what he argues uh, about uh, these two um, measures is that they're not internally, they don't mesh internally the way they're supposed to, because they're supposed the characterization is Sen and Nussbaum's um, that prohibits, it really ca cannot lend itself to total rankings, and yet, um, and yet they do right, <laughs> provide a method for getting total orderings. And uh, Chamberlain um, reviews that, um, he says, the procedures that are specified in these two measures are not reliable for assessing the capabilitarian well-being as it's characterized. So there's a case where there's um, the, the purpose of the procedures is to assess capabilitarian well-being uh, a la Sen and Nussbaum, and they're just not reliable for doing that. Okay. Uh, now that's you know, sort of, will the procedures, are the procedures reliable for assessing the concept is characterized? Um, and that's internal um, to the, uh, the, the, the concept, um, but sticking with the idea of measures, um, there, um, there's another purpose, I mean, another worry is, um, will the concept characterized and its measures serve the purpose intended for that concept? So um, the consumer price index may well serve the purpose of estimating the average increase in the cost of the designated ba basket of goods. You know what it does is they, they have a designated basket of goods and then try to figure out what the average, uh, what the cost of that basket, average cost of that ba basket of goods is in one year and what the cost of the, the average cost of that basket of goods across the country is in another year and then um, use that to calculate the inflation, the average increase in the cost of that designated bag, uh, basket of goods. Okay. And the CPI, um, as it's procedural, as it's defined and proceduralized, that concept may serve the purpose of doing, of doing that. But um, as Julian Rice has um, urged, it almost certainly does not serve the purpose of ensuring that veterans' benefits uh, secure the same standard of living from year to year. So one of the things, one of the many things, um, in the U.S. here as well, lots and lots of things are pegged to the uh, to the CPI, um, and like pensions, uh, your state pension. Um, but what uh, Julian points out is veteran pe veterans benefits are pegged to the CPI, um, but um, there it's the CPI is really rubbish. Uh, um, it's just not at all reliable at the job of ensuring that the veterans' benefits secure the same standard of living from year to year. Because among other things, uh, what's happened in the US is that there are these large um, suburban retail outlets and they, when they, um, the measurers are um, trying to figure out the average cost of the basket of goods, they have to weigh in. They look at the cost in those as well as in high street uh, uh, shops, and that weights that brings the costs down. But veterans uh, can generally veterans who are depending on their benefits um, have no access to those uh, suburban outlets. Uh, so it's a very bad um, measure of uh, how to keep their standard of living. So that's just another example of how um, it's you have to be really careful about purposes. So um, 
and how purpose matters. I mean, the one and same thing can be um, good for one purpose and not for another, and that even can seem closely related. Uh, I just want to uh, tell you just a remark then about one other thing. Sometimes that the reason I want us to focus on um, reliability for what is that I think we often make mistakes because we haven't gotten clear what reliability claim it is that we want. Um, and it's often not easy. And we often you know, think we know what we want when we don't. Um, so I was gonna talk about the Valent Dam disaster. So this was the uh, largest um, single arch dam uh, in the world at the time it was built in the Dolomites. And um, it, um, what happened was they, um, the dam uh, um, stood sturdy in the face of a huge limestone landslide. There, all these rocks fell into the reservoir. And, but the dam right, did what it was designed to do. It stood up and that meant that you had a huge tsunami of water that just swept over the top and went down the valley and 2,500 people were killed. Okay. Uh, so now the um, uh, point here, um, this comes from a paper uh, by Per Luigi Baratta and uh, Eleonora Montuski. I couldn't help putting my picture with Eleonora there. Uh, so um, the, uh, what Baratta and uh, Montuski point out is that the engineers focused on two purposes. You know, with the, was their dam plan, their plan for the dam reliable for these two purposes. One with a planned dam stand against a range of onslaughts and they thought about what kind of onslaughts there might be, like more water, right? It would stand up against more water. Um, uh, uh, and will the surrounding stone support the dam? Okay. Um, and what I, what I get from Broda and Montuski is that, as a matter of fact, they just implicitly supposed that if they had a yes answer to those two purposes, uh, they had a yes answer to um, the purpose of make, make, making sure that the lives uh, in the region uh, were safe in the face of such onslaughts. Um, now, it isn't that they, they didn't exactly separate those, and if they had, um, they might well have behaved uh, very differently. Uh, it turns out that the dam uh, was um, reliable for the first two purposes and not for the, set, for the last. And um, one of the reasons was that they, um, they used a generic, uh, well-established generic, which is, was not reliable for those purposes. It wasn't reliable in those circumstances. So the chief engineer says, look, the rocks of the Veneto region are um, very good. Overall, limestone um, is, um, I don't know, <laughs> honest. Oh, that's what it says. Um, limestone is, is honest uh, stone because it reveals its flaws on its structure. Uh, so that in general, you can just look at the limestone and uh, on the surface and see if it's flawed. Now that just turned out not to be that general truth, turned out not to hold in this instance. Okay. Um, now that, um, that's tragic. Um, and that mistakes can happen like that. Uh, but what, um, what Barada and Montinsky also suggest is issues of warrant. 
So one thing is, is it re reliable? It wasn't reliable. Um, and the generic, um, yeah, the generic wasn't reliable. Uh, they also thought that the, um, the chief engineer um, didn't have sufficient warrant for taking it to be reliable. Um, and that's because warrant has to do with, our warrant is, a, is an issue that has to do with its moral issue. Um, um, with what the cost of making uh, mistakes in either direction. So, um, in fact, um, there was available uh, a lot of local knowledge of large limestone landslides up the valley. And if that knowledge had been sought out and taken into account, um, and it should have been, even though, they, even though they didn't know there was that knowledge, um, they ought to have given the huge cost uh, in lives that was at stake, um, they ought to have uh, uh, looked to see if there was any local knowledge about the, about the limestone. And they also, they could have done in-depth geological studies, uh, but they were thought unnecessary um, since the rocks of the area didn't raise visible concern. So um, Broder and Lentuski conclude the engineers were not warranted in assuming the reliability of the generic um, in that setting because of the huge costs of making the mistake. Um, so it, it wasn't, they weren't, <laughs> it wasn't reliable and they ought not to have supposed it would be without further investigation. Okay, so now just review and reach the end. Um, there are, I've looked at five reasons for focusing on reliability. Um, puzzles about what the, um, as, focusing on reliability uh, of a variety of different scientific products as opposed to uh, the truth of um, general claims. Um, uh, the one was that I think it's totally unclear what the general claim is that we're supposed to uh, take to be true. Um, then many general principles, uh, I've argued, aren't truth apt. And if you do try to turn them into truths, um, then they turn out to be false, unwarranted, or of little use. Um, then the reliability of a tangle of other scientific outputs is presupposed in warranting these uh, general principles we take to be true. So even if you're only interested in truth and um, you don't have any grounds for supposing it, um, unless uh, the other scientific products a huge number of other scientific products um, uh, are reliable, okay? Uh, then uh, the simple one that much that needs evaluating uh, in science isn't a candidate for truth to begin with. And lastly, that reliability invites reliable for what? So uh, the, you know, the question about reliability for what, uh, is a matter of really focusing in on the particular, the particular purpose that you're assessing reliability for on this occasion. Um, I think that true general theories are just one of the many scientific ingredients it takes uh, to make uh, a reliable product. And whether that product is a model that you want to, for instance, you might want it to picture causes accurately or a procedure like to measure capabilities well-being or a dam design, you want to prevent deaths, okay? Or any of these, true general theories are just one of the many, many, many scientific ingredients it takes to back up um, and make for a reliable product. And 
real questions in the real world right, require this whole tool bag of scientific products to serve them, and uh, general principles or laws are just one of the two, many, many tools uh, that uh, you need in this toolkit. So, to finish the overall lesson, uh, the National Academy of Science, the US National Academy of Science, we call said, theories are the goal of science. And I think, and I've argued, that that's just back to front. Okay. Uh, what science can and should deliver is one particular success after another, after another, after another. Thank you.